What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh. I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica. Meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to a new episode of Sundays with Kate. And this week we are talking about Kate Blanchett's 2004 film, The Aviator, in which she played the great Catherine Hepburn. So Kate the Great playing the first Kate the Great, um, and for which she won her first Academy Award. And my guest, I'm very excited to have him with me today, is writer and critic Manuel Benincourt. Hi, Manuel. Hello. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about The Aviator. I remember you talking about Hepburn, and, and I thought you would be the perfect person for this. I, I do love Hepburn, and I love Kate, even if I don't love The Aviator. Um, <laughs> but I, I, have a, I have lots of thoughts, and I can't wait to, to dive in. That's great. So let's dive in. So before we get to the aviator, let me ask you first about your impressions of Kate. So do you remember so the first time you saw her? I was I was trying to rack my brain because um, I must have seen Elizabeth and Ripley roughly right after they came out. But I don't remember like seeing them. But the first movie that I remember, like going to the theater, buying a ticket and remembering this is like a Kate Blanchett film is bandits oh yeah which is her bruce willis uh billy bob thornton really weird threesome criminal movie and, and it's yeah. odd but I, like i have this like very distinct memory of i was visiting my family and we all went to the theater and we saw bandits and none of us knew what the hell we had watched and then i must and then we saw a few months later uh, fellowship of the ring so in my mind those were like my first Introductions to Kate, although, again, I feel like I must have seen Elizabeth and Ripley before. She just didn't register with me, and I, I, I don't understand why. Because, <laughs> um, of course, she's amazing in Ripley, and she's amazing in Elizabeth, yeah. um, and especially compared to Bandits, which is sort of like low, like second-tier Blanchett. I don't think anyone talks about this movie. I don't think anyone watched that movie. But that's the first time that I remember being like, oh, there's Redhead. Oh, there's, there's something here. Yeah, we are now going to break to do a karaoke version of Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's the one scene that I'm like, I just, I can't. I remember so vividly being like, oh my God, who is this woman? Who's your favorite Kate performance? My favorite Kate performance. And it's taken me a while to enjoy it. Um, I think for the longest time I loved the movie and always felt that Kate was miscast. Um, but the more I've seen the movie, the more sort of her performance has grown on me. And I love her in Notes from a Scandal. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is, again, it, it's it it's taken me a long time to sort of realize that this, that that's the Kate that I that I love the most. Because it's the Kate that's most different, I think, from what we think of her, which is like very composed, very regal, very contained. And Sheba is just not that. Um, although I obviously have a soft spot also for her for Carol, but yes. notes, notes is, is, I just love that movie to pieces. <laughs> I love it too. And that's such a great answer because most people I ask this question, it's either Carol or Blue Jasmine. Yes. So I'm glad that there is um, a notes and a scandal, her Sheba heart. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of when you think of Kate? So I, for me, like, again, I think, I think glamour, I think regal, I think that she's sort of this otherworldly creature. And I think that has a lot to do with, again, Lord of the Rings being one of the first movies where I, like, I really mm -hmm. met her as an actress and sort of it had such an impact on me. Um, but I think the more I've gotten to know her over the years and seeing her in interviews, I love that there's this like regal Kate that you see in red carpets wearing beautiful dresses. But there's also this, like, because she's Australian, there's this like earthy Kate. Mm -hmm who's like down to earth and loves to laugh and loves to joke and really can talk about anything with anyone and really have a good time. And I, I think that the mixture between the two is I think what makes her such an exciting 
presence on screen that she can really shift between the two, which can really, really pose, but also have you grounded in sort of like a really earthy kind of performance and really reel you in. So that's what I, that's what I think about her. Uh, and I think that's why the bandits Lord of the Rings pairing in my mind and my memory is sort of like, those are the two things that I remember her being earthly, but also otherworldly. Um, and the two at the same time. Well, she's definitely leaning into the glamour quotient in The Aviator by playing mm. Catherine Hepburn. So that's who she plays. The Aviator is from 2004. Um, it's directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Howard Hughes. And this is the only time so far that she has been in a Scorsese movie or acted with Leo. Although I think it's um, it did bring out shades of her that we haven't seen before um, before she did this. So maybe hopefully she could do it again. So Kate appears uh, as Kate 27 minutes into the movie. So guys, you have to wait. If you haven't seen this movie, you have to wait a little bit for your favorite. <laughs> and it's an excruciating 27 minutes. Yes, we have to follow um, Howard Hughes through the making of his film Hell's Angels and a cameo from Gwen Stefani as Gene Harlow before <laughs> Kate appears. <laughs> and I love that she appears, like she gets the movie star treatment. You, mm -hmm. The camera comes in, it's to the set of Sylvia Scarlet, which is a 1935 movie that George Cukor directed and Cary Grant starred in with Catherine Hepburn. And you see the backs of Kukur and Grant, and it says their names, and it says Kate Hepburn, but she's not in the seat. And then it pans out, and she's sitting on the beach on a blanket, and that's when Howard Hughes gets off the plane to talk to her. So she gets the movie star treatments, as befits both Kates. Mm -hmm. Have you seen Sylvia Scarlet? I've just seen like scenes on YouTube from it, which is... I think it's a movie where Hepburn plays um, a woman pretending to be a man. Yes, I saw it a couple of years ago. And it is, I think I saw it because Lincoln Center was doing uh, pre-1969 queer films. Mm -hmm. So that's where I saw it. And it is, a, it is fascinating. It is sort of a failure of a movie. Like it's not, it's clearly not Kukor and Hepburn's best, but it is fascinating. And it does play into this uh, sort of Hepburn's, cross-gender sort of that, that that she was that that she could go from being really feminine to really masculine uh, and that she has her gruff ready and you get that too immediately after we meet kate in the aviator so as yes. soon as, as soon as she looks at the camera and sort of sees howard then immediately you're at the golf course and, and kate's in control and he she's wearing pants and yes. she's a woman and she knows she's speaking and she's holding your attention immediately and one of the things as i was rewatching the aviator I read Hepburn's autobiography a couple of years ago and I was like, oh, I should look back, see like how she describes meeting Howard. And it's almost word for word what happens in the movie. And oh, it literally, wow. as, she, as she's talking about, she has a, an entire chapter called Howard Hughes. She says, you know, he arrived in his plane. It wasn't in, on a beach, it was actually on a field. And she says, we met. And then immediately after we went, the next time I saw him, we were golfing. So it's like the beats from Hepburn's biography are like beat for beat what the aviator is sort of doing. Well, you know, Just Scorsese always does his research. Oh, yeah. And this this feels like almost word for word sort of their meeting is right there. And I love that scene. So the, the golf scene, it's a scene where <laughs> if you look at this performance, Blanchett, let's just call her Blanchett because, you know, there's two K -K, Yes. Yeah. So Blanchett is doing this complete imitation mimicry and she is doing it to the hilt it's big <laughs> she's got the voice she's got the mannerisms she's got the body movement and this is why that i think that scene is so impactful you're either in with this performance or you're not because she's presented in the golf screen in this golf playing golf with leo as howard hughes and he doesn't even say that much. She is walking and talking and playing golf, doesn't even wait for him to respond to her. She's saying everything and you're just, and she's going really big and you, you either love it or you're just like, okay, I can't deal with this. And obviously I loved it, but I think that's why it's, it's so impactful. It's just so big from the beginning. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's quite jarring. 
And I like I I, rem- I watched The Aviator like when it came out, and I remember like not really thinking about it much. I remember sort of Kate being Kate, and sort of that being like sort of that the mimicry was there. But I hadn't thought about this movie in a long time. And then when I was watching it ahead of this, because I'm so now well acquainted with both Hepburn and Blanchett, mm-hmm. seeing that scene, which is really like attacking you with the mimicry, yeah, feels so jarring. And I said it's sort of like a jump and she's saying you know i'm just gonna go for it and you're like, like you're saying like you're just either gonna come with me or you're gonna be left behind uh, which is sort of what hepburn is is doing to hughes which is like i'm gonna talk i'm gonna i'm gonna play i'm gonna keep talking at you you are deaf and i don't i don't understand why you're not acknowledging this but i'm just gonna keep doing it. she's like steamrolling him and she steamrolls the film and i think it's it's one of these like supporting performances that you can see why oscar borders like got attached to it because it's yeah. the kind of like you really want her on screen the entire time but you also know that the power of the performance lies in that it's so carefully doled out and it jolts the film every time yeah every time she's in i mean it's a see i'm i'm not surprised at all that she won the oscar because it's a series of set pieces where mm. she is center for the first sort of half of the movie or for like an hour after she appears or something like that. There's, I think, five or six scenes and they're all about her. She yeah. is walking and talking and playing golf. Then she's in the Coke cabana, f- sort of being irritated by Errol Flynn. <laughs> then, then she's in a plane falling in love with Howard Hughes and flirting with him and saying golly. And then, you know, she's taking care of him and talking to him about fame. And then the breakup. So these are all sort of like big set pieces. So, and she is just, the scenes are, the movie is about Howard Hughes, but the scenes she's in are about Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. And I think like, it's fascinating also that the cinematography really like marks their scenes as different. Like where like that golf scene has like a very different coloration from the rest of the film. And it sort of stylizes already. And so I think like marks, Blanchett's performance as very stylized that, that, that the film is going to sort of follow through with that and even that final sequence that they have together they're not even in the same room but they're both lit like she's lit like a red light and I think that there's always these moments where the film is really making you make conscious makes you aware of how different her performance is within the film but that like she is at the center of every one of those interactions and yeah, I'm glad you you brought up the stylized and sort of the different colors because Scorsese has, you know, in reading trivia about this movie, I wouldn't have noticed it, except I read it, is that he changed the color in post in every time period that the movie takes place in based mm. on the movies and gradation, the color gradations of movies of that year, of that era. So I guess in Kate's scene, he was in Blanchett's scene, he was doing the Hepburn movie colorations mm. that's fascinating and it's that's such a marty thing to do <laughs> yes he's such a movie <laughs> like nerd the, the film historian in him is just always sort of like uh attacking it with that but i just love yeah it, it's a it's a performance that I, again like i hadn't thought about it in a long time and seeing it now and after seeing what blanchett has done since it does feel so revelatory and it does feel like it was, as you said, like tapping into something that she hadn't done before, but that we've seen a lot since. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, there's something really risky, but also really fascinating in seeing her do this sort of like tightrope Mm -hmm. performance that it is a lot, a lot about mimicry, but the moments that I really appreciated was she shows us Hepburn listening and paying attention like I love a lot of them are sort of duets like her and Howard her and Howard Mm -hmm. but the Errol Flynn scene and then the amazing family dinner scene Mm -hmm. are all scenes that are about her but it's about how she's paying attention to how other people are treating Howard and sort of immediately realizing that something is wrong and that she needs to get him out right and there's such a care about what she's doing and it's all in reaction shots where she doesn't have the voice to fall back on and she doesn't have the mannerisms to fall back up, but it's all in her face. Mm-hmm. And I think she does so much on it. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the family dinner scene, which is the dinner where Howard Hughes goes to meet Hepburn's family. And let's just say friction arises. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought that scene was about the comedy of Hepburn, like, cause I haven't seen the movie in a while, but when I saw it this time, to your point, 
Pepper and Blanche doesn't talk that much in that scene. It's always the it's the other members of the family and Howard being very uncomfortable. And so it it allows her to do, to your point, something different. But also I liked what she brought up in other scenes, like the scene where she talks to him about the folly of fame and how he needs to be careful that people don't find out what a weirdo he is. And in that scene, she sort of brings the vulnerability of Hepburn, somebody who became famous very young and who has been dealing with it for a while. And I think that was at the time because she makes the joke to Errol Flynn about how she's box office poison. So that was a time in her life where she was not sure of what was going to happen with her career. And even though the movie is not about that at all, but I think just Blanchett brings that in the performance. Was the uh, press there? Uh, Some... But uh, they're calling everyone should be on the wires by now. What is it? Kate? I've been famous, for better or worse, for a long time now, and... I wonder if you know what it really means. Yeah, I have my fair share of press on Hell's Angels. I'm used to it. Are you? Howard, we're... We're not like everyone else. Too many acute angles, too many eccentricities. We have to be very careful not to let people in or they'll make us into freaks. Okay. They can't get in here, we're safe. Oh, oh, they can always get in. It is fascinating to then think of sort of Hepburn as sort of this catalyst for something at Howard and Howard also being as a catalyst for something in, in Hepburn. There are, there are moments when I, I wish the movie would just follow her because yeah. I'm, and I'm fascinated that like no one has ever sort of taken Hepburn up as a, as a movie character because I think her Spencer Tracy relationship seems ripe for the type of movie that we'd want to see. Yeah. And I wonder if it's like everyone is just so nervous about taking someone like Hepburn on that you could only do it in, in, in small doses. So like if you actually, created an entire movie around her, yeah. uh, it would be sort of o- overwhelming. I wanted to ask you, so when I was reading reviews to sort of talk before talking to you, a lot of the reviews were acknowledged the mimicry, but, mm. and acquired the, the stylization of the performance, but they were not very, like, I think of this performance as one of Blanchett's best, but they were not very positive beyond that. Like, for instance, Manolo Largas says, Ms. Blanchett sounds as if she's channeling one of Pepper's own overblown performances, which is, you know, damning them with feigned praise. Oh, but right. I think, and I think you agree from what you just said, that she goes beyond the mimicry and does find more shades to play. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, Hepburn is the kind of character that you could only build from the outside in, right? Mm-hmm. Like you build her from like what she's wearing, like you build her with like trying to get sort of like the jaw, uh, you built her with her voice. You built her with her hair. Especially when and the it, movie is like saying saying all these things. Errol Flynn says, Kate of the Locked Jaw. And she goes, exactly. golly, all these things are in the script. Yeah, and sort of it, it, it's it's the only way to build it. But I think I think Blanchett goes one one further in that. And I, and I think this is why she may be um, sort of attuned to something that Scorsese was trying to do, which is like, she's giving us Hepburn, but she's also giving us the Hepburn we know, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a this is the kind of performance that, like, as Dargis says, like, it is a Hepburn performance, right? Mm-hmm. This is the only Hepburn we know. Hepburn rarely gave us an access to sort of what she was in private. And I think what the Aviator and Blanchett and Scorsese do is, like, fine, we're not, we can't give you the private Hepburn, but mm-hmm. we're going to give you the Hepburn you know, but put her in situations that are going to illuminate things about her. So, for example, that fame scene, again, I, because I went back to read the Howard Hughes chapter in, mm-hmm. in his autobiography, it's all there, right? She says, uh, I have it right in front of me. She says, Howard and I were indeed a strange pair. I don't think 
what should I say? I think that reluctantly he found me a very appropriate companion, and I think that I found him extremely appropriate too. He was sort of the top of the available men and I of the women. We were a colorful pair. It seemed logical for us to be together, but it seems to me now that we were too similar. He came from the right street, so to speak, and so did I. We'd been brought up in ease. We each had a wild desire to be famous. I think that this was a dominant character failing. People who want to be famous are really loners, or they should be. So giving us sort of a character of Hepburn, but then wrapping her in scenes where she gets to grapple with fame, gets to grapple with what kind of man she wants to be around, what kind of man her family wants her to be around, and sort of having Spencer Tracy sort of hovering off off the screen. I think it, it was the only way to make that performance work. Because it becomes then also like an ode to Hepburn and to the Hepburnisms mm-hmm. that so many of us love. Yeah. And, you know, Kate was very aware of that Blanchett here, I mean. Um, so I have this quote that she gave to the New York Times at the time where she says, representing Kate in the same medium film in which she existed was very daunting. But because she was so private and few people really knew her, we basically know Hepburn through her films. So, of course, you have to give a nod to her screen persona when playing her. And this sort of brings me to, I think of this as one of Kate's riskiest performance, just because of mm. what she's saying in this quote. She is portraying Katherine Hepburn, an icon of the medium of film, in a film. So in the same medium, it's not like, you know, playing Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln didn't have <laughs> hundreds of movies where you can see him at any time. So I think this is where the risk is. And it's sort of, I guess I'm a little upset that people don't acknowledge what a risk this performance is. It's mm. um, because it's in a movie directed by one of the best directors ever. People don't think of it as a risky performance. But I think that that combination of taking on Kate in a movie presents a very big risk. It does. and I, Although I think taking a risk with Scorsese must have felt sort of comforting yeah. uh, at the very least. It seems like the, the, the movie would um, sort of buffer um, a, a little bit of the risk. And here's where, like, I think she's been taking those sorts of risks since. Uh, I think that the, the performance of this should be thought of in, in, in comparison to or in association with is something like the I'm not here, I'm not mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I'm not uh, Right, which is sort of like a similar type of, like, I'm going to take this iconic person and then I'm going to do it and, like, She's supposed to be doing Lucille Ball in a movie soon for Sorkin. And I think, like, Kate's not someone, Blanchett is not someone that I think of in terms of, like, oh, she nails mimicry or, like, that she's known for mimicry. Because she she was never the Meryl. Mm -hmm. She was never a Meryl. Um, But she still has has managed to, I think, explore what it means to use mimicry and what it means to inhabit another person in order to get a sort of like a, a deeper thing. And I think a lot of it has to do with her voice. One of the things that I really appreciate about watching The Aviator this time is like, it's so uncanny the way she uses her voice. But then it just made me think of like, oh, she does this in every movie. Here mm-hmm. it's just being used for something else. Or like I think of like, you know, the quivering in Blue Jasmine or the yeah. breathiness in Notes in a Scandal or the etherealness in Lord of the Rings. So like, she is someone who really knows how to use the voice. So, it, so then it would make sense that she would take on Hepburn, who is, again, it, is so great at, at her voice. Right? Like, she has such a signature voice and who didn't really change it from, from movie to movie, right? Like, she was but it just is like, distinctive. I'm, I'm, it is distinctive. I'm sure you know Errol, right? Mr. Flynn, yes. Kate. Kate of the clenched jawed headburns, enchanting as always. You should use locks on your hands, by the way. I do. Katie, sweetie, you and Howard ought to cook up a picture. Co-star with hey, Errol. Watch out! that in space. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think not. Don't you read variety, Mr. Meyer. Well, I'm box office poison. I'm on the outs, the skids, the doldrums. Washed up. Day-old fish not worth the eating, so they tell me. Hell with them. Hell with them, I did. One of the things that I, I, I loved in watching The Aviator this time is like it made me appreciate that final sequence better. Because at first, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, okay, Blanchett's not as great as doing Screwball. But then I realized that well, she doesn't need to be doing Screwball, even if mm-hmm. the movie and the pacing and the rhythm seems to be asking her to do Screwball in the golf course and then in the family and then with Errol Flynn. But she's so good in that final moment when it's just her voice that Howard can hear. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's sort of like, 
a, a toned down register and she's really not not performing. Because I think the other thing to talk about in The Aviator and that Howard Hughes is the Leo's Howard Hughes is called out is that he believes that Hepburn is always acting. Yeah. <laughs> so it's already embedded in the performance that there would be a level of performativity and a level of like coaching something out of others uh, in the way that she interacts with them. And so I think that adds a sort of like a second layer to why taking on Hepburn and taking on her mannerisms and taking on her mimicry actually serves the character and serves the way the movie is thinking about the character. Yeah, that leads me to one of my favorite Kate Blanchett line readings ever, which is where she <laughs> says, I'm not acting. Not acting. <laughs> Uh, I love it so much that I put it in the intro for every episode. So uh, <laughs> you have to hear it every week. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to go back just a little bit to talk about risk. Um, and I sort of appreciate your point in saying that this was the beginning of her taking more risk, uh, because I think I agree with that. And I think that's true. But I also just want in general to sort of just talk about l what constitutes risk in screen acting. Like, I think People think of it sometimes as subject matter or artistic merit mm -hmm. or sort of when you're a collaborator, for instance, who is more avant-garde and, and the opposite of a big movie, which obviously Scorsese and Fincher and a lot of the directors that Kate worked with um, at this stage of her career were not, which is, I think, why she was never thought of as a risk taker as a screen mm -hmm. actress. Where do, you, where do you stand on that? What do you think is... What do you think is risk in acting? Risk in acting. Well, it's well for this. I was also doing um, a little bit of research, and one of the one of the interviews that I love that Blanchett gave um, is for a conversation with Ian McKellen. They mm -hmm. did a sort of an actors on actors a couple of years ago for yeah. Mr. Holmes and Carol, and I just love it because the two of them get along so well. But they talk a little bit about how she's always scared of taking on projects, and I was like, it, that just made me. It's just wild for me to think that Blanchard would be scared of taking on anything because because right. I'm just like, you can do anything, Kate. Like, what are you talking about? But she's like, but when Fincher calls you or when Scorsese calls you and says, do you want to do this? She's like, uh, I mean, I can't say no. Yeah. So it, it, it it's fascinating to think that for her, maybe like every performance is a risk, regardless mm -hmm. of, of, of what it is. But to, to take on it, take on it broader, I think for me, when I think of risky performances, are stylized performances, um, especially in the 21st century, because I think we've been so coddled by realistic or naturalistic mm, yeah. performances that we know what they look like, we know how they're built, we know, like, method act, right? There's a sense of, like, oh, I understand it, this is how people live and move in the world. So the performances that I always think are as risky, and I think this is why Hepburn um, in The Aviator sort of falls under that, is that it they're the performances that jolt you and make you realize like, oh, there's, there is no one way of acting. Mm -hmm. And there are various different ways. And I think that's the fact that also Blanchett is so tied to the theater and that has such a theater um, sort of aspect to her career and to the way she approaches performance. I think she sometimes brings that in and that it's always a little bit stylized in a way that demands your attention or in a way that really puts her character in quotation marks, but yeah. then still demands you feel alongside with her. And I think there's the risk, because I think in stylized performances, there's a way in which that can sometimes very easily fail. Yeah. Um, if the movie isn't built around you or isn't really at the same tone, but when it works, uh, I think the payoff is so much is so much greater. Yeah. And I, I, I think that she, when she does what you were saying reminds me of sort of like what she did, what she did in Blue Jasmine or what she did in Carol, mm. which Blue Jasmine is not stylized as much, but it's sort of going to the edge of risking it all. I don't, <laughs> I can't think of a performance where um, she was giving something that was just too subtle or too... I'm, I can't, I'm searching for the word, but like, you know, we recently did an episode on The Gift and I think, mm. I don't know if you saw that movie, but that was one of the movies where it was just like, the movie didn't work, but mm. I kept wanting her to go bigger and bigger. And maybe that's just because I love that and that's what I love from her. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you were talking about like one of her favorite lines is I'm not acting, but like the, the, the it's not even my fame, my favorite Blanchett line, but the, the line that always comes to mind is her Elizabeth Golden Age, I am the wind and I, I hold a hurricane in me. And it's yeah. such a ridiculous moment, like in the <laughs> film, outside the film, in a trailer, like thought, but it, 
and, but she sells it and it's and it's because she goes big and it's because she says you know i i'm the queen and the screen will be able to contain or not be able to contain this power that i have yeah so i i love when she goes big and i love when she goes um sort of bonkers <laughs> me too so this brings us to sort of like who since we're talking about blanchett playing hepburn Let's talk a little bit about who we think is Kate's sort of classic mirror actress, because mm-hmm. I think of her as somebody who would have been great in those amazing movies in the late 30s and 40s of Hepburn and, and Betty Davis. And I've always in my mind thought of Kate, even though she is much more glamorous than Betty Davis, I always thought of her as somebody who was playing in the Betty Davis register like I think young 20-something Kate would have done an amazing job in Jezebel or of human bondage who do you think of is it Hepburn for you is Kate I think I think late Hepburn is closer to what Blanche is right that that these sort of because even as we're talking about the voice and the the physicality there's an intellectual level to Mm -hmm. Blanche's performances uh, which I associate with Hepburn and that she it's not that she overthought things, but like that she was a very smart person and that, that she brought an intelligence um, to her characters and in the way she played them and in the way she sort of imbued them. And I, and I think I also think about that with Blanchett, which is why initially Notes in a Scandal, I always thought like, oh, she's so miscast. Like, there's no way you could lead me to believe that someone like Blanchett would be so easily swayed or like be so naive. Not that smart. <laughs> And she, right. And I was like, no, Blanchett is like super smart. And Blanchett, like, why would you, why would she be cowed by anyone? So I think that level of intellectual acuity that I associate with Hepburn it is, is there also in Blanchett. Although now that when you bring up Davis, I think it's a, it's a perfect example. And I feel like Blue Jasmine is something that like very easily could fall under like this, like women's melodrama and women's yeah. film. And that's, that's sort of Davis. Although I think she is much too glamorous and much too beautiful. I mean, Davis was stunning, but in a sort of like a very different way in a counterintuitive way, whereas Blanchett is sort of like drop dead, sort of beautiful by any standards that we could think of. And Davis uh, also played a lot of non-glamorous women. Right. Not, not so much Blanchett. I feel like, which I sometimes wish she did. Like, I, I, I wish she, I, I think that's why I have a, a, a hard time, like, I love the glamour, but I always sometimes want to think of, like, oh, what would a gritty Blanchett performance look like? Yeah, I think the grittiest that she came closest to was Blue Jasmine, and even then she was a New York Society maven. I know. <laughs> she's like, let me think of the most grittiest thing, and she's like, oh, this socialite who is drunk. <laughs> All the time. Her playing Jude Quinn and I'm Not There makes me think. Um, and a little bit in, in Carol, though in Carol she was very femme. But that performance also made me think of Marlena Dietrich. She sort of had mm-hmm. that glamour slash androgyny thing, which I think you see more of that in her red carpet than in yeah. her screen persona. But I think that's something, besides I'm Not There, that's something that maybe I would love to see more of with Blanchett. Yeah. And she played with it a little bit in Ocean's 8, right? This, it, it's, yeah. again, another sort of, like, lipstick butch, I'm going to play and I'm going to fuck with gender. But yeah, she doesn't really do that much. Although, again, Hepburn is is sort of a, a, along those lines, although she does look mm-hmm. yeah. gorgeous in both of the the beautiful, beautiful gowns, the gowns, the beautiful gowns that she wears. But I think Hepburn is also kind of like Kate in that she's like that more in her sort of off-screen persona. Yeah. Um, on screen, she hasn't really put it. But but now that Blanchett is in her 50s, I'm really looking forward to sort of late 60s Hepburn. Like, give me something like The Lion in Winter, Blanchett. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. I can't wait. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, I think we talked about most of the scenes that Blanchett has, but is there a scene that you like that we haven't talked about? The plane scene is great. So... Okay, we've talked about her scenes, but I feel like we haven't talked about the scenes in relationship to the, to the movie. And you know, I started off by saying like, the Aviator's not my, it's not, it's not a, my favorite movie. It's not. I don't think it's a great movie. It's not but even think, in the top Scorsese movie. Oh my god! And no. I love Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's so good. I think one of the thing, one of the reasons why the Peppern performance really pops is because those scenes seem to be getting at something that the movie itself never quite delivers elsewhere which is like this is an examination of of a man 
you know, how how does power sort of like warp his mind, but also how this sort of like sense of cleanliness, right? That there's there's all these like issues about Howard Hughes and intimacy and controlling. And they're all, I think, very perfectly sketched out in the Hepburn Hughes scenes. Yeah. And they sort of disappear everywhere else. Yeah. Like to me, the the scene, the movie really plays like this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And everything is sort of like tied together by like his love of aviation. Yeah. Great. But I think the Hepburn Hughes scenes, because there's this talk of fame, because there's this talk of intimacy, because there's this talk of control, and it's so mapped onto this like very unlikely couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah. think the movie doesn't quite really get me to understand what it is that made them such an interesting fit. Like, I don't understand. I, I still, after having watched it, I was like, I don't know if the movie has convinced me. I mean, it doesn't give us anything beyond that they are two weirdos, right? Because she yes. says that line, you, you're you deaf and I sweat. Yeah. And you're like, okay, so is that... And I, I, I sometimes wish the movie like prodded a little bit more in, in that direction because I think that's where the, the interesting friction of Hughes as a character is. But that was clearly not what Marty was interested in. Yeah. It's not clearly what the movie is interested in. But I think it is what makes their their, their scenes together pop and i think the the airplane scene i think is the closest that it gets me to sort of understanding like oh yeah we're a bunch of weirdos and you know we both have sort of a sense of adventure and we both have a sense of like unconventionality um and you say golly and i've never heard anyone else who uses (laughs) the word golly so of course i love you yeah Um, i mean i think he falls in love with her because she plays at his level right mm -hmm. she's not afraid to just leave whatever nightclub they were in with Errol Flynn, get in a plane, learn how to fly a plane and fly it in the same night. So she is, she's really playing at his level. And maybe there is the younger Scarlet, a starlet that he meets who I don't think ever plays at his level. There is a later mm-hmm. scene where it's sort of, you see that contrast where she can't even put two words together. And it's funny yeah. because in real life, I don't think their relationship lasted all that time. I mean, the movie implies from Sylvia Scarlet to Woman of the Year, which is about five, yeah. six years. And I don't know, but just from what I, I don't know that much about Howard Hughes, but just from what I read, he has, you know, dated almost every movie star in yeah. that time. There's a rather alarming mountain heading our way. Pull back on the wheel a smidge. Go on. Golly! <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think the other thing, and this is the other reason why I don't particularly care for the Avery, is because I think Leo is miscast. I think he was much too young. Um, he looks like to a pull it off. He, I, and I kept like looking at my notes and I was like, how old is he supposed to be here? And right, like towards the end of the movie, he's like in his forties and you're like, Leo, no, you just look like a child, like a child and like a ha- with a hat and a mustache. <laughs> um, he would have played it well now because he has filled oh, up. Yes. And I, but, but, and I think also he's like gotten better as an actor. And mm-hmm. I think that, I think he was just much too young. But I think one of the things that that does is that the thing you don't really or that I don't really buy while watching it is like why all these women were drawn to him. Mm, yeah. Like I'm drawn to Leo, but I don't think I'm drawn to Hughes. And I think that's a problem. And I think that becomes a problem when he's acting opposite people who like really don't bring it or don't really exalt it. So I'm thinking of the scenes with Kate Beckinsale as Ava Gardner yeah. that I, that I think are just garbage. Yeah. <laughs> I, those, yeah. I, I, because they and she I think wasted the difference... such a great opportunity back in sale, and she's good. She's been good before and more oh. and after. I mean, she's amazing in Love and Friendship, but the but but I think the difference, and I think it's a good comparison to Blanchard. Is like Blanchard clearly has a thesis and an idea about Hepburn, mm-hmm. yeah, both in relation to herself, but also in relation to Hughes. So she's able to play that, and I think in Beckinsale. And even someone like Gwen Stefani and her like blink and you'll miss it role, like there's no there's no sense of who this woman was as a person mm-hmm. outside of her screen performances. And so there's there, there's no there's no gravity to when they're on screen. So then all you get is like Howard Hughes just like screaming or Howard Hughes like wanting to control. And then you just never there's not an equal weight to that relationship yeah. to get me to buy it. 
I mean, Beckinsale is, you need, when you're playing a glamorous movie star, which both her and Blanchett play, you need to hone and perfect the pose. And they both do it, but I think Beckinsale does nothing more than just perfect the pose and maybe play a little bit with the voice. Which also sort of brings me to, like, after they break up and she, like, runs away with Spencer Tracy, and, you know, I'm not partial or I can't be impartial so um, I just feel like the movie lost its energy completely and I finished it even though this time (laughs) I was watching it just to talk to you about Kate Blanchett I still finished the movie but I just kept like it was more than an hour and I kept just stopping Netflix and looking like how much is left and I can't believe there is an hour and 27 minutes (laughs) so much movie left and it is and I I I mean, I had the I had the same experience, and I and it's just like I don't I don't get it. Like I don't as a character portrait, I think it's too long. As a relationship drama, I think it's too long. Like I I never I never understood what the movie was trying to tell me about Howard Hughes, yeah. other than like oh he was so eccentric and changed to industries because of his ambition, right? And, if, and I think that's how Netflix sort of, like, builds it, and that, that's, that's all over the synopsis. Like, he changed the aviation and the motion picture industry because of his, like, giant ambition. But, I, but then again, I'm also deathly allergic to great old, great men stories where there's no discernible female lead. So already I was going to be bored. And Alan Alda's fantastic performance can't he's really save so the good. last... He's so good. Like, it, he's just amazing. And, it's, and I think it's because there's, like, an effortless... Um, to his performance that I think it's also what rubs me the wrong way about Leo and like in Leo you really see the the gears mm-hmm. uh, like turning and you really see him like wanting to do things and you know I need to act like this here and I need to act like that there whereas Alda is just like it's he so embodies the character and he's so like makes you at home and you like believe this is a real person yeah the movie sort of like loses steam once once Kate disappears Yes. Both gates disappear, I guess. <laughs> I already am on record that I'm not acting as my favorite line reading in this movie. And Blanchett has so many amazing line readings. Is there one that you particularly pre- uh, like or prefer? I I love the Howard, there's a rather alarming mountain coming away. Because <laughs> it, it's also like such a perfect Hepburn line because it's like deadpan. And yeah. it's like, oh, you can see that could have been like in a Cary Grant film. That could have been in a Spencer Treat. Like, it's just... It's so perfect. And she does yeah. it so well. It's, she, yeah. it's just perfect. She like breaks in the middle before she says mountain as if she's yeah. thinking about how to say it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's perfect, yeah. I always like to talk about Kate, the, the costumes that she wears. And this is, you know, our beloved costume designer. I think everybody I know loves her, including you, Manuel. I'm putting words as, into your as mouth. As everyone should, yes. Sandy Powell. Um, this was the first time she costumed Kate, and then she did again for Carol and Cinderella. But I think the green gown where Howard takes Hepburn to a movie premiere, and then she works the room with L.B. Mayer, that is such, it's such a Kate with the shoulder. It's very 40s yeah. with the shoulders. The color with the red hair, the green is just, it pops. But it's also such a glamorous Blanchett moment, and she looks yeah. so fine. That's, that's really my favorite. And I think also with the gold in the coke uh, uh, at the club they go and meet Errol Flynn in is also a great one. Yeah, played by the beautiful Jude Law. Yes, I actually love her golfing outfit, and I think because it's because I love the Hepburn that I love is a sort of like no nonsense, like I'm gonna wear pants, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is such a way of like it's a it's a reductive way of thinking about Hepburn. But I do that that sense of androgyny in her fashion was so obviously telegraphing so many more things about how she thought about her life, how she thought about herself. And I think it, it, I think this is what something that Powell does so well is that the costumes are always telling you something about the character. And I think that the blazer and the cut of a pants and the way in which like Blanchett is really comfortable moving around in that as she's talking and as she's sort of like monologuing and hitting the ball and just lobbing every kind of punchline our way. I think it, it, it's it's a great moment of like a costume that you wouldn't immediately think is sort of flashy, but I think it, it it's so character focused and informative yeah. that I just love it. Yeah, yeah. I love all, all the costumes. They're all fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Follow through is everything in golf, just like life. <laughs> Don't you mind? Saw your Scarface picture. 
violent, realistic. Movies are movies, Howard, not life. Now the stage. The stage is real. Real flesh and blood human beings right out there in front of you, buster. Can't look away. Can't much popcorn. That would be rude. Do you like the theater? No. No, I adore the theater. Only alive on stage. I'll teach you. We'll see some Ibsen. If the Republicans have an outlaw at him by now. <laughs> You're not a Republican, are you? Couldn't abide that. How did you uh, vote in 32? Well, I didn't. You must. It's your sacred franchise. So we can't talk about the aviator and Kate Blanchett and not talk about the Oscars. So <laughs> this was her second nomination and the first time she won. So it's an amazing sort of touchstone in her career. And I remember at, at that time, time um i've always i've loved kate since elizabeth so in 2004 i was six years into my lifelong love affair with her and i was hoping against hope that she would win but also everybody kept telling me they prefer virginia Matson, and i kept it to myself but Mm -hmm. for all my friends back then in 2004 you're all crazy I was so happy she won. And even though I know a lot of people preferred Virginia Madsen or um, Natalie Portman. And I think a lot of that comes to the fact that people just did not appreciate that she went beyond mimicry. But I think now we can go back and say she did. Yeah. Well, you know me. So you know who I was yes. rooting for back then. Um, she had won the Globe. So I was like very excited. I was like, oh, it's like it's going to be an ingenue win. Alas, it did not happen. And my dear uh, Natalie had to wait another couple of years before she was up there. But yeah, thinking about it now, I think it makes a lot of sense that she won, both in terms of like who Blanchett was as an actress and in, in the industry. But it, it it's such a part that has like Oscar written all over it. Yeah. And like you have the mimicry, but you also have this iconic, a sort of presence uh, and you can see a lot of Academy m- members being like, Oh my God, I remember it, it was, it's as much about honoring Kate mm-hmm. Hepburn as it is about honoring Kate Blanchett. And Kate and- Hepburn died just as they were about to start shooting. So by the time mm-hmm. the ceremony came, she might've been dead for a little over a year. So yeah. still in people's consciousness. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, as much as we like to say that, or, are arguing that here there's a level of sort of performance that goes beyond mimicry. I think the Oscars have proven time and time again that actually mimicry, it, it, it's the lowest bar that people will want to reward things. Yeah. Um, we need only look at last year's best actor performance or our potential best actress performance this year, yeah. which I will not talk about because um, <laughs> I think it's also, it's another instance of like an iconic uh, screen presence being um, sort of invoked. And I think, um, muddling people's um, sort of understanding of the performance. Yeah, people can't uh, resist it. Like I think people in the in, people in general, but also people in the academy, they oh, can't yeah. resist it when you throw an entertainer in their face. <laughs> yeah, and who's and again, who's like so iconic that you're like, oh yes, I can, I can. Right, it's a Kate Blanchett is Kate Hepburn, and you're like, yes, I forgot that I was watching Kate Blanchett. I thought that I was watching Kate Hepburn, and you're like. No, actually, what I love about the performance is like she never lets you forget that this is a performance. Yeah. And I think that's that this is the kind of risk that we were talking about. It's like there's a mimicry, but that, I think there's also like a remove and that she's pointing to sort of how constructed this Hepburn is both in the film, but also for Hughes, but also for us as audience members. Yeah, that's I, not what Oscar member. That's not what Oscar voters were were thinking. I think Oscar voters were just like, "Oh, Hepburn, yes. <laughs> I love her. I can't give her a fifth Oscar, but I'll give Blanchett her first. I couldn't give Garland one, so I'll give. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see if Renee Zellweger gets all the way to an actual Oscar with Judy. Before we go back to sort of like talking about Kate in general, I have some questions for you. I want to ask you, as somebody who loves. Catherine Hepburn, to sort of talk a little bit about her screen persona and sort of something that we haven't touched on that you think is in her screen persona and maybe a couple of performances that you really enjoy and want people to look into? I was I was thinking about this and I, I wonder, do people talk about Hepburn anymore? I, I feel like, yeah, or that when they talk about her, it's sort of just about her, like, Oscar wins, right? Like, that, yeah. that we know, you know, Hepburn won four, and Meryl has three, and so this is the only way we think about um, her recently, and I think it's, it does such a disservice to a career that 
was really so influential yeah. to generations of movie lovers, to generations of actors, to generations. She lasted so long. She was at the top for so long. Oh my God. Yes. And read that, that she had so many like incarnations, right? Like there was like screwball Kate and like this sort of like ingenue Kate and that she was able to then do the Tracy Hepburn films and mm -hmm. that she was able to do this. And then like, then still she would win her two Oscars. Like when she was, you know, in her later Late years life, and that yeah. they're so, I mean, on Golden Pond and Lion in the Winter are like so beautiful. And I think there is, I think there's, when I do think about Hepburn, when I think about Hepburn in, in contemporary conversations, I think a lot of it usually boils down to or is reduced to like, well, she always did Hepburn, right? Like, oh, well, she, you know, Hepburn was always playing sort of herself. But I think that does a disservice to the kinds of performances that she did. She just had a and very other... distinctive screen persona and a voice that is just, I can just hear it now yeah. in my head. Yeah. And I think, but I think it's also because she makes it feel so effortless. Yeah. And I think that that's also what I loved. So if, if we're talking about like, you know, go to Hepburn movies that you should watch, I will not be the last, the first or the last person to say like bringing a baby is brilliant mm -hmm. despite it being horribly, you know, criticized and uh, at the time and like it was a bomb and yeah. she was locked up as poison. But one of my favorite Hepburn performances is Suddenly Last Summer. Oh, yes. And it's, First of all, that movie is insane on so many different levels. Um, it's the craziest it, story ever. <laughs> it's the craziest story ever. And it's, and it's again, sort of like what we were talking about, Blanche, is like Hepburn had a way of being sort of a no-nonsense performer who had such an attention to tone so that she really makes this sort of like monstrous woman Mm. so alluring and so seductive while still being Hepburn. And I think this is this is what fascinates me about her uh, her screen presence is that she was always obviously herself, but she channeled it. And I think that's something that we like, take for granted here or that we tend to downplay in the 21st century. It was like, what, oh, we're, when they're just playing themselves, yeah. there's the, there's the sense of like, they're not, there's not work involved. And I don't think any actor ever plays themselves unless they're, I don't know, Jerry Seinfeld, maybe. <laughs> exactly. But, but, but I think the, the this sort of like movie star performance, yeah. I think, has been has been so trashed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think just because there's no effort involved or just because you think they're playing themselves or a version of themselves, I think when people do it great and I think when people know how to channel that and I think Hepburn was a was one of the masters in doing that. And I think that's one of the reasons she hated someone like Meryl, right? Like, because Meryl, <laughs> yeah. it was sort of the opposite. Like, Meryl was about with this chameleon. And yeah. for Hepburn, she was like, I don't understand that. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a school of acting. And I think this the school of acting that uh, Hepburn sort of belongs to has been sort of fading. And I wish we would sort of bring it back and sort of... So to, to look at something like Bringing a Baby, some looking at something like Sun the Last Summer and looking at something like Lying in the Winter... Mm -hmm. I don't think you can look at those three performances and say, oh, Hepburn was just Hepburn. Yeah, she has range just in, within those three. Yes, absolutely. She has the range. She um, has the range. Is there any young, younger actress working today who reminds you of Hepburn? I don't think so. I mean, I think Blanchett was the one that would immediately have come to mind a couple of years ago. But mm -hmm. it, if we're thinking sort of younger... Um, I don't know, but I think it's also because the types of films that Hepburn did, right? These like screwball They're comedies that made her start, they don't make yeah. them anymore, right? So that sort of charm. I mean, I think as someone like Anna Kendrick, I think her comedic stylings, I think is sort of the closest that we get to someone like mm. bringing up baby's Kate. I mean, I I would say Emma Stone, but I, I don't think of her oh. as Hepburn, but more Shirley MacLaine. But it, yeah. she's somebody who would have thrived so mm. well in screwball comedies. Yeah. I mean, those eyes alone. Yeah. So let me ask you some few questions about Kate. Do you think Kate has ever been underrated? Is there a performance you think that people don't give it did you that she is? And, you know, this is always a tough question because she is somebody who is so rightly rated, like she is rated <laughs> so highly. I mean, I think Notes in a Scandal is an underrated performance. But I think also the, the, the time between Elizabeth and The Aviator was probably the closest you can get to when Kate as an actress within the industry and within critical circles was underrated. Yeah. And then like she seemed to be doing work, but she wasn't really like breaking through. And I don't think in 2002, if you had asked someone who's one of the best working actors of her generation, 
I don't think people would have said Blanchett then, but, but I think there's now. no way they, yeah, there's no way of then going back and being like, no, she was one of the best. I have done a couple of movies that she has done in that period between Elizabeth and the aviator, which is a period that people, I think, say that she's, she was lost a little bit, but mm-hmm. I think she was just trying to do different things. You know, she did movies like the man who cried and worked and did a Western with Ron Howard. You know, she was trying to do different things. And I think she was also trying to get as far away from Elizabeth as she can and doing all these things that if you look at them, the one thing that's in common between all of these movies are they are anti Elizabeth pushing tin and all these movies that nobody remembers today or, you know, your favorite, um, <laughs> bandits, bandits. Uh, nobody remembers them, but they are all anti Elizabeth. And I think maybe finally after, you know, she's been on many sets and really became an amazing screen actor. Then she was yeah. able to post aviator to get to where she, she is now as one of the most respected screen actors. What is, who is your favorite Kate scene partner? So one of the things that I love and that I, I was trying to figure out as an answer to this question, I was like, I think I love Kate best when she's playing off women. Mm, yes. And I don't think she does that enough, but I think when it when she does, it's sort of like the fireworks. So for me, the, the, her two best scene partners are Rooney and Carol, obviously, and then also Judy Dench. Oh, wow. Yes. And I, and I, and I, I, I know it's on a scandal every time the two of them are together and especially that final sort of like altercation when she's like smeared makeup and she's, you know, insane and they're yelling. It's so, they bring something out in her that I think men don't. And I think she, in something like The Aviator and like Lord of the Rings, like she does tend to be like the sole woman on Mm -hmm. set, which many, many actresses of her generation like have been saddled with for decades now. So I think like when she gets to play off women and I think like even the moments, the better moments in Ocean's Aid when she's just with Sandra Bullock, like mm-hmm. there's an energy there that I think she she thrives in. And I think you you and I have both seen her on stage. And I think there's there's a crackling energy that she has with actresses that I really appreciate and that I, I, I wish she did more. Yeah, um, me too. I want her and Dame Judy to do something together again. Yes, yeah. and I agree with you. They crackling fire in Notes in a Scandal. They play off each other so well. And Dame Judy is so sublime as, you know, mm. so amazing in that, in that movie. The, I think I would only say the only person who was in a movie was Blanchett who was better in the movie than Blanchett is Dame Judy Dench. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think all the other actors, she's always one of them. <laughs> Um, who would you like to see her work with? And this could be somebody she's worked with or she hasn't. Yeah. I, well, as I was trying to think like, okay, so which female actresses would I want? Or like female actresses, female actors, would I be uh, pairing her with to, to see what kind of crackling thing? I keep coming back to Meryl. Oh, yes. And for me, it'd be less about what Blanchett would be doing and more about like what Blanchett would bring out in Meryl. Mm, yeah. Because I think, you know, the I think the best screen pairings are all about like what they bring out in one another. And I think some Meryl, as amazing as she can be, I think sometimes she's let down by the people around her, both the directors, but also her screen partners. And I think pairing her with someone as smart and as attentive, but also as instinctive as Blanchett might deliver something interesting that I that I'm yearn- that I've been yearning for. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we would survive. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I want to see that too. Because I, I kept thinking of like what Kidman and Streep did in Big Little Lies. And I think mm. that there was something there and Andrew Arnold, I'm sure, was sort of involved that I, I would love to see that happen with, with someone like Blanchett. Yes. And maybe they can play, you know, real people. So, you know, I don't know who, I can't think of any <laughs> of who, but... Because they are both famous for playing, doing these sort of incarnations. So mm. do it. I don't know who, but get it done, Streep and Blanchett. So yeah. um, beyond The Aviator, what's your favorite line delivery of Kate's? So the one that I use the most actually in my everyday life is I like the hat from Carol, oh, which is such yes. a throwaway line. But I just, 
there, there's something so beautiful and it's such a small moment, but I, every, whenever someone is wearing a hat and I like it, I just go, I like the hat. Yeah, but it's also <laughs> like a, the start of a grand love affair, right? Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a beautiful line. My, my, and then my other one is, who do you have to sleep with around here to get a Stoli martini with a twist of lemon? <laughs> Which again, just lines that just like I can use on an everyday basis that her delivery is just I can hear it in my head. And sometimes it's, for me, I, I wonder because like something like Blue Jasmine or something like um, Carol or, and even The Aviator, there are so many amazing lines. And you're like, did the script, were these scripts just about <laughs> yeah. lines or is this about Blanchett's delivery? And I think yeah. it's probably a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. So is there something in the cultural perception of Kate you like um, or are annoyed by? I don't know if there's anything that I'm, in, I'm annoyed, but I do, I do sometimes wish there was less of a demarcation between Kate on screen and Kate off screen. Mm. Uh, what do you mean? I, well, what we were talking about, like the, the, the sort of like glamour, mm. beauty, sort of aloofness that sort of like she's like a goddess. Um, but then when you get her talking or like when you watch interviews or when you see her on stage, there's sort of this like earthiness yeah. to her and that it's, it's clear that she either doesn't bring it to the screen or doesn't get offered parts that would get her to play that more. But I wish I can see what you're saying. Like, you know, she, she does not lean into earthy all that much at all, mm-hmm. even though she can be. And I think also a part of that is that. She is so glamorous and she does sort of, quote unquote, perform the red carpet. I think she takes that on as another part. She's like, all right, I'm playing movie star tonight. And that's (laughs) completely not who she is because there is a a vast difference to your point between when you see her just sort of gliding down the red carpet or in an interview, especially with someone that she likes. Like if you see her in an interview with other other people she likes, other actors, like, for instance, the Ocean's 8 press. Oh my God, yes. So that's so it's not so much about her perception, but like it it seems like a missed opportunity. And I think this is why when I first saw her, I first saw her on stage doing Uncle Vanya, and it was such a revelation to me because she was so loose. And I don't think I don't think of her as an, a loose actress. To me, she's always like very contained in very very specific and very intentional ways. But on stage and in the maids too, she was like, there's a gangliness and there was like sort of like a looseness to her that's electrifying and that's so alluring. And I think that's why Blue Jasmine sort of stands out. It's because you sort of get that a little bit and you sort of like see her coming off or loosening up. And I don't know who would be able to get that from her on screen or like what kind of part that would ask her to do that. My answer, especially these days, is Pedro Almodovar for everything. (laughs) <laughs> as it should be yes i well i kept thinking like female filmmakers might yeah. be able to coax that because as i was looking through like oh who she's worked with or who she would also she has a very like male i think she's only i think jillian armstrong is the only female um, film- the man who cried was directed by and i'm forgetting now but oh by sally potter sally potter yeah so i th- but i think those were yeah she mostly works with male directors yeah and she's so, like adding another big male director next, which is Guillermo del Toro, so. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because I, I keep thinking, like, you know, what would Mariel Heller do with Blanchett? Or what would Andrew Arnold do with Blanchett? Yeah. Or someone like, um, oh, my God, who did The Dressmaker? And, and she's Australian. Uh, yeah. Jocelyn Moorhouse. Jocelyn Moorhouse. Like, someone like, because I, I, Kate, and uh, that the other Kate that we haven't talked about is Winslet. That, yeah. Kate and Kate are also like in my mind twins. I don't know. They're not even the same age, but in my mind, they're sort of like well, they, you, they I, became you famous one around Kater. the same time. Yeah, and to me, it was like, were you a Winslet or were you a Blanchett? And for the longest time, I was a Winslet, but she's been letting me down lately, so I really can't be in good faith a Winslet fan. But I keep thinking of the dressmaker performance of the Winslet. Mm-hmm. It was like yeah. someone right because Winslet is also someone who's like has that sort of earthiness, but doesn't really channel it that often but i found it with that or she um, does channel it more than blanchett that's for sure yeah before we go is there anything else you want to say about blanchett or about hepburn or the aviator i think i think i've said i think i've said everything you should watch the hepburn scenes i think is my (laughs) 
<laughs> Someone must have really done a supercut somewhere on YouTube. It was like just the Hepburn scenes. And they are all amazing. Like you can't They're, go yeah. wrong. Just watch one after the other. And that's all you need from The Aviator. Thank you so much, Manuel. This was a joy. Thank you for coming on Sundays with Kate. And why don't you let our listeners know where they can find your work? Uh, probably the easiest way of finding my work is on Twitter. So you can follow me at bmanuel. That's where usually I'm talking about Winslet and Blanchett and Streep and all these other amazing uh, women. And then if you go to my website, mbetancourt.com, you can see where else I've written and where you can order my upcoming Judy Garland book that comes out in May next year. Yeah, that's exciting. Looking forward to that. And you can find me online at on Twitter at Emmy underscore says and follow the podcast at Sundays with Kate or on Sundays with Kate.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.